Good morning. This is Andrew Escano with the Nosebleed Podcast. It's Sunday. I don't know the date because I'm still in quarantine. So it could be any fucking date. But it is definitely Sunday. How do I know this? Because UFC 251 just ended. God damn, that was good. Those were some those were some great fights. For any of you guys that are not fans of the UFC, if you like uh, violence or you like people pummeling each other, it doesn't matter if it's a male or a female. Today we just saw Rose Namajunas take take Andrade. Was that Andrade? Anyway, take her down, beat her to a pulp, and she got some damage too. She's got this giant contusion under her right eye, and then and she's got cuts, and she's got a broken nose. It's all fucking crazy. Because Rose Namajunas is gorgeous. If you ever see this person, like, outside of a fight, or even in the fight, she's by far the prettiest fighter. But yeah, she kicks ass and takes names. She doesn't fuck around. So, that was great to watch. And, you know, I I used to be a minor instructor in, um, in Eskrima. Like, I'm not that good, but I was good enough to teach people basic steps, basic strikes, blocking, and the first, there's like the the very, very core of the study. I was able to do that. And in those circles of Eskrima, you find Krav Maga people, Silat people, and all of them are like, that would never work in a real street fight. In a real street fight, you would do that. And it's like, shut the fuck up. Like, we under, people understand that there are differences in actual life or death combat. And if you think that you're a person that needs to experience that, well, you then join the military or join the police because you're never going to experience that unless you actively jump in there. To think that you'll have an intellectual cursory notion of how it's like is completely dumb. So if, unless, and unless you jump into that situation, I guess you're just going to have to trust the people that say, man, it's not like that in a real fight. Because it's not, of course. But it is still a competitive sport of fighting. And that's important. And UFC is as real as it's going to get without throwing, without scratching, and without grabbing cheeks, and without poking eyeballs, and without actively trying to hit the groin. Like those, those techniques of domination are in a completely separate category. Which, to be honest, a lot of them cross over. When you're looking at something like the UFC, something like jiu-jitsu, something like wrestling, you can't tell me that wrestling and taking somebody to the ground and actively immobilizing them isn't going to be a similar technique than catching, catching a perpetrator and trying to get them to the ground and trying to subdue them. The only difference is there are cuffs involved. So when you watch something like the UFC, what you're watching is two trained fighters to see who's the better fighter. Not good guy, bad guy, must take out bad guy. It's a com- that's a completely different game. That's like, that's like darts versus tactical shooting. But anyway, I went on a completely crazy side <laughs> sidetrack there. But yeah, anyway, those, those fights... If you get a chance to watch them, watch them. Kamaru Usman, 
who I love. I love Kamara Usman, but I like Jorge Masvidal better. Kamara Usman put put the fucking beating on Masvidal. Granted that Masvidal has better hands. Masvidal has much better striking than Kamara Usman. But Kamara Usman is a fucking Division One wrestler. And that's what he did. It's like he went to his corner... In the first round, he got fucked up in the face. He kept getting tagged, tagged, tagged with all these combinations. And then he went to his corner. And somebody in his corner is like, Hey, what are you doing striking, fuckface? You are one of the best wrestlers in the UFC. Use it. And he's like, yeah, oh yeah. And then he did. By the way, it does look boring. But it's it's part of the game, man. It's part of the game. It's like... It's like watching, what's his name? Khabib Nurmagomedov. <laughs> I fucked it up. I thought it was, in my head, I thought I was going to get it right. It's like watching Khabib Nurmagomedov. You, you think it's going to be lit, but like 75% of it is just like him grabbing legs and like pushing his forehead into your chest. And it's almost like, it almost looks like he's going to suck this dude's dick, but he ends up just like punching the guy in the head with an overhand instead of actually going lower on the hips. Because he's a Muslim man. And he don't take that gay shit. So. <laughs> so. So yeah. Actually this isn't the reason why I wanted to, to talk on this podcast. What I wanted to talk about is testing. And this is, this is coming from a lot of the back and forths that I have. With the intellectual intellectual sparring matches and gymnastics. that I That I tend to have with my cousin. As well as other people who are. I don't want to say less formidable, but um, there are people when it comes to science and politics that don't know what they're talking about. Granted that I know less about politics than I do science, but these individuals don't know politics or science, so they still have opinions. And a big one is around testing. Why isn't testing supposed to be, like, why isn't testing where it's at? Why isn't there enough testing in America and in the Philippines? What's wrong? Why is there inconsistencies? Is it, is it all political? Is the news pumping up the numbers so that we stay fearful? Man, the news just perpetuates fear, man. It's like, all right, cool. But you, can, you yourself have a choice to be scared or not. And if you're of the opinion that the majority are happy to be fed information, then, then sure. And you know what? A lot of them are. A lot of people would rather be fearful because it justifies the stasis in their life. Because they can't go out and they can't do anything. I'm in Cebu. This is the longest running stay-at-home order shutdown in the world. I'm staring out my window right now and there are kids playing and they have no fucking future. (laughs) The kids on the road? Good luck. This is going to be an economic disaster 10 years down the line and guess what all the politicians are going to do hightail it out to europe hightail it out to hong kong america they're all going to go there and i'm not going to lie if i had the chance right now i would jump on that plane and be in america right now too at least i'd be making money where in testing so okay testing what makes testing so difficult well for one Testing in and of itself without COVID is a three main step. It's like, it's like a three-step process or not a three-step process. There's a bunch of different steps, but there's three main categories to look at testing. There's pre-analytical, 
analytical and post-analytical. And if you're a med tech, um, you probably already know this. If you're not a med tech or if you're a nurse or something else, this is going to accurately describe what we go through in the lab. So pre-analytical means getting you scheduled, getting the sample, and transporting the sample to the lab. So pre-analytical is an entire logistics operation. It's either you show up to the lab or the hospital, and then you get the test taken there, or they set up satellite sites for you to go, and then you give a sample. So regardless of COVID or not COVID, they're going to take a sample from an approved method from an approved individual who hopefully is using tubes and reagents for collection that are not expired. That's another thing. All of these are materials that are patented that you have to buy. Every single swab for the COVID test, every single vial that of blood that you give for an antibody test, all of that has to be valid and you have to justify the cost or the lost or the loss of said cost by analysis. So granted that everything is within the expiration date, they collect the sample with aseptic technique, they close it, the site that they collected from has to be correct too. I know there's been some confusion of people saying, why are they putting the swab in the back of your throat when it's a lung infection? Shouldn't you be going down? It's like, okay, you can get a bronchial lavage, but do you really want that procedure? Do you want something down your throat? No. People bitch and moan about a tiny needle going into their arm because you relinquish control. It has nothing to do with the pain. It has everything to do with trusting someone else to not hurt you that much. That's why we hate needles. Control issue. So we get the right site. We have the right reagent sealed. Now you have to think about transportation. So transportation needs to be quick because you have to analyze a sample according to the stability of the container that you put it in. So let's say you put the COVID sample inside the, inside the medium, inside the viral medium. Well, that only lasts a couple hours. It could be eight hours, 16 hours, 24 hours, and then even then. Can you freeze it? If you can freeze it, how many times can you thaw it? So you have to think about this when you're sending off a sample because it's not like that sample is going to stay the same. You only have a short window of time to have it analyzed. So let's say everything is perfect, a courier, you're in a satellite area, you put all the proper names in to the system, you have an encounter that's created on your system, and now the laboratory is waiting for the sample. Courier picks it up, drives it to the lab. Hopefully there's no traffic, hopefully. So let's say it arrives at the laboratory. Okay, so you have this whole batch. You have this bag of different types of tubes that they just put on the table and it has to be sorted. Well, you have a team that's there to sort it. And, though, and so the people that are in this sorting team have to match up the barcodes or if you don't have barcodes, then shit, the name and the date of birth, you have to line that up with the order sheet that comes in which is the encounter sheet from the satellite. Remember? Hey. So once all of that matches up, it's input into the system as ready to test. Cool. 
Now we get into the nitty-gritty of the analyzers. When you run a sample on an analyzer, the analyzer has to be within quality controls, meaning you have to prove that this analyzer is going to spit out the correct number or the correct positive or negative result within specific bounds. So if you're outside of what we call standard deviations, if you're outside of two standard deviations of the center point of your mean, then something is probably off and then you can't test. So if you can't test, then you have this whole backup of a million samples. And if anybody's ever been in a lab, these analyzers are really, really finicky. It's not like they show up and they're within range the entire time. Probably the best analyzer to stick within range is like a Sysmex hematology analyzer because those, the Sysmex really, really, really can hone in on a few criteria of blood cells as opposed to, let's say, a PCR analyzer which has a bunch of moving steps or a chemistry analyzer which has a bunch of patented chemicals coming in from different areas that you have to individually load. It's a really, really critical process, this quality control. Now, in order to even test anything, in the context of COVID, you need to have an analyzer that is valid. Shit. Validation studies. You get a new analyzer or a new method it's not like, oh, we got the machine, put it in, spit it out. No, you have to run hundreds, if not thousands of tests against a standard that doesn't exist with COVID. So you have to find the next best thing. How the fuck are you going to find the next best thing on something that doesn't exist? That's how testing works. You need to have an existing, and you have to have an existing thing that tells you as a guidepost whether or not your measurements are valid. You know how long it takes to make those methods? You know how long it takes to make those, um, to make those uh, standards? It takes fucking months. What if you don't have months? Well, then you don't have the test. So kudos to science for making and research for coming up with the standards that they have come up with now. But then you have to run your analyzer at a loss. This is why analyzers are, so, uh, analyzers are so costly, because they're almost a million dollars, if not more than a million dollars. Plus, you have to have a contract for the reagents. Plus, you have to set up the methodology. And now you have to run that test a hundred or a thousand or more times at a loss to you, at a loss to your business. These are not cheap tests. So once you've proven over the period of how long Usually when it comes to validation studies, it takes me about a week to complete a validation study if I'm doing it like if I'm comparing it to standards that I already have and also at the same time working within the department, whether it be hematology or chemistry or blood banking. So it'll take me probably about a week and then I have to draft the report. Now you can analyze. So let's say all of that is done. All of that is done your quality controls are in, you can run these tests. It takes a long fucking time to run these tests. If you have a thousand COVID samples that are all ticking on a clock of stability, tick, 
tick-tick-tick-tick-tick. Every second it gets less stable. Every second it gets less stable. And your analyzer can only hold five, ten. Well, shit, that means that you need to have six analyzers that have to go through that entire validation process at the same time against a standard that we don't know once again. So it's all shots in the dark until you get it close, close enough. And unfortunately, people are going to either get sick or people are going to get affected more because we don't have these testing standards set up. I think we do by now. By now we have these testing standards, but over the, that, over the past few months, that's been a big issue within the world of the clinical lab. So you need a bunch of analyzers to keep up with that demand because if you don't, if you don't run these and PCR, PCR can take up to what, an hour or two hours? It takes a long fucking time. Plus you have five samples plus you have a thousand waiting, okay, you have to try to beat the clock. And if you do the math with a thousand samples and it all takes, what, fucking hour to run, you're really, really, really testing the limits of how you can test accurately. And let's say you have a thousand samples, you run them, and then within eight hours you only get to 300. Okay. So it carries over to the next shift or the next eight hours. Well, a lot of these analyzers have to update their quality controls every eight hours. So let's say your quality controls were in when you ran those 300. You run the quality controls again, and you're out of control. Your analyzer is out of control. Well, guess what you have to do now? You have a few tries... If you have, you have one more try to really say like, okay, let's bring it in. So you have to compensate for a random fluke. If it's not in after two, oh shit. Then you have to go back and question those 300 potentially. Or if somebody questions you about that, then you have to wonder what is it between those eight hours that you were testing the 300 samples that put the analyzer out of control. And if you pinpoint that event, then from that event onward, you probably have to retest the samples. And what if you don't have enough sample left? See guys, now, after you've analyzed everything, and you're within control or hopefully within control, your head's about to explode because you're under the stress and a thousand people are just like, I just want to know if it's good or bad. I just want to know if it's positive or negative without understanding that the clinical lab is quite possibly one of the most, it's the most complex fucking logistic system in a hospital. You're on a, you're, you're, you're on a, it's like you're getting surgery, you're on a bed, you're out. Those are a different set of variables, sure. But those are, those are greatly up to the individuals that control the situation. It's up to the surgeons and the doctors. When you're in a clinical lab, you have, to run this, you have to run this business by the numbers. It's all about the numbers. And the performance of the individual scientists, shit. They have to be on top of their game 24-7. Because if the analyzer doesn't work, you're going to have to do things manually. If you didn't go to Velez... <laughs> See, I know, it's horrible because Velez has this, this whole egotistical, 
I'm from Velez. We had 24-hour shifts and blah, 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 blah. But a part of it is true. Because of the legitimate abuse that all of us in Velez took when we go to different laboratories, especially laboratories abroad, and they tell you to do something, we're like, okay, done, what's next? And they're like, what, you finished it? And so unless you went to, <laughs> unless you went to Velez, or sorry, any other school out there, then you're probably not very familiar with the manual methods. So let's say you dodge that. You have post-analytical. Post-analytical has to do with getting the result back to the right person. And most people use an electronic medical record system. The biggest right now is called EPIC. And EPIC is fine. EPIC is great for nurses. And EPIC is great for doctors. Which, by the way, those are the only people anybody fucking talks to anyway. But it's pretty shitty for the lab. I think the best laboratory procedure software would mm, probably be SunQuest. SunQuest is excellent. It's just doctors and nurses don't like SunQuest. <laughs> but for clinical lab, which is almost like reading a business ledger, times, results, names, barcodes, in, out, quality controls, that's all the lab. It People don't like it outside of the lab. <laughs> but... You know, even in the post-analytical side, things can go wrong. Let's say your name is John Smith, or your name is Jesus Garcia. Jesus Garcia? Wow, Jesus Garcia from where? Jesus Garcia from Cebu City. Okay, Jesus Garcia from Cebu City where? Like, what's your birthday? Oh, September, September 9, 1989. Oh, shit, there's another Jesus Garcia that's September 9. Hmm. <clears throat> that's where you have to go through the medical records number. You have to find other means of identifying. But if you're in a rush, shit. Those are hard. That's why MRN number and birthday... Sorry, MRN number. That's why MRN... See, MRN number is like saying ATM machine. It's redundant. The MRN and the birth date is what you should look at. But people still might screw up. Because let's say that's input into the system. And now the third party has to give the results to the patient. Whether it's through an app, through mail. A lot of the times the lab, the reference lab, that's not their problem anymore. They ran the fucking test. They have a thousand more COVID tests that they have to run the next day on their limited analyzers with no standard. <laughs> like, what What can they do? And it's hard to trust that the people delivering this information... Sorry, that was my pen. All these things are my pen or my, my mug. So it's hard to trust the people delivering this information to deliver it accurately as well. The, all the mix-ups that are happening right now in terms of testing are actually few and far between. There's not very many mess-ups when you talk about the numbers. When you talk about 
how many individuals actually get their results accurately, it's kind of amazing to me. I think it's a modern marvel. And, you know, the medical lab doesn't get any fucking praise. Everybody loves research. Research, which is everyone's going to find a cure for something, but they never fucking do. <laughs> cancer research was looking for a singular, singular gene. They thought that one gene would affect one cancer, and they poured billions of dollars into the gene theory of cancer, and they came up with ugats, fucking nothing. Yeah, that was amazing, isn't it? That's why we're hearing about immunotherapy for cancer. Immunotherapy, immunotherapy. That's because between 1960 and 2000 and what, nine? And billions of dollars spent? They came up with nothing. And that's the best that we could have done. Those were the best minds in research. Research, by the way, which is a part of the academe, research would never, researchers are never willing to admit that they're wrong. Have you ever spoken to like a researcher the amount of energy that they put into this cause makes it nearly impossible to think that it wouldn't work that is true of almost everyone in the academe and i'm not saying that doctors and medical technologists and clinical lab scientists are not like that as well why do you think i'm doing this podcast because i think that my shit doesn't stink as a medical lab person and i'm pissed that people are questioning it without understanding well now you understand if you listened or if i said it clear enough <laughs> but there has to be a time and a place to say i fucked up i fucked up and in a clinical lab people do that all the time if your performance is not up to standard in a clinical lab and this happened to me i've fucked up in a clinical lab before i fucked up twice twice in very big institutions that are world fucking renowned one was a micro incident when i missed um what's that when i didn't stain a sample very well and i missed gram negative bacilli in a sample this was a peritoneal sample, peritoneal fluid. And um, so the head of micro, who, by the way, was way too hot to be the head of micro, the head of micro pulled me aside and said, I thought we went through staining. And I said, why? She said, this is your fucking slide. She didn't say fuck. She's like, this is your slide. This is my slide. Look at your slide. What do you see? And I see nothing. She's like, look at my slide. Clear as day. <laughs> Clear as day, gram-negative rods. And she's like, I, I have to demote you for this. And that happened. And that hurt. That sucked. The other time it happened was in blood bank. Ooh, shit. The anal we, so, so we came, we had a... <laughs> blood bank is one of those areas where if you screw up, you can definitely kill someone, like, right then and there. And I was very, and I screwed up. But nobody died. I misinterpreted tube method, blood type, the most basic, because it was a weak positive and a negative, and I jiggled it a little bit too hard. Also, by the way, if you guys ever, 
ever want to know how, uh, how fragile things are in a clinical lab, if you jiggle something a little bit too hard, the agglutinate will just disperse and it might look negative. And even if you look at it under a microscope, the jiggle of a tube can determine whether somebody dies or not on a table. Crazy, huh? And now you want 300, 400, a billion accurate COVID tests. Good luck, guys. So I want to end this by saying, like, I really hope that the technology does get better. It is actively getting better. We're creating standards. We're knowing more and more about COVID and everything else now. And we're going to hit a point where we can confidently and accurately give out these results the same way we give out a CBC. And pretty soon, all these techniques are going to be as accurate as the Sysmex hematology analyzer. This isn't an ad for Sysmex, by the way, and even, even then, if they heard this, they'd probably bar me from working in a lab ever again. Career ruining shit, I say on here. So with that, I got to say, don't succumb to fear. Don't succumb to speculation. I understand that in the information age and the information war, what's fact and what's fiction kind of is up in the air. And if you come out with fact, guess who will listen to you? Nobody. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. This has been the Nosebleed Podcast. I got to go eat something. I'm hungry. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you for listening.